Thank you, Jeremy. Good morning. Well, I woke up at five and then I tried to go back to sleep. I don't know, does that work for you? It's like once my mind is turned on. So then I, I woke up at six and then I rushed to the office and I've just been rushing, 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 rushing this morning and I really appreciated the, just kind of the quieted down music and worship lyrics and just a chance to kind of quiet my soul. Today is Palm Sunday. And what we commemorate is that on, on this day, so many years ago, Jesus set out with his disciples to cross the Kidron Valley and enter through the East Gate and into the city of Jerusalem. And you probably know that it was uh, this day that many others were on their way to the city and they begin to shout acclamations and cries of Hosanna. The crowds were elated and uh, it wasn't a Sunday. It was the day after the Sabbath. It was the first day of the week. But it was the day that today we call Sunday. So we call it Palm Sunday because of the palms that were carried in celebration. And I believe that although the disciples were certainly a part of that as Jesus mounted a donkey and made his way into the city full of uh, symbolic importance. Jesus knew that sometime this week he would be put to death. So on the first day of the week then on that Friday, Jesus was crucified. And I think he had death on his mind, even in the midst of the throngs and elation. This morning, I want us to look at a passage in the Gospel of Mark, because Jesus, prior to entering Jerusalem into the city, he was at the farthest reaches of uh, the Galilee and north. And it was in the area of Caesarea Philippi that 
he turned to the disciples and asked them a very important question. And this became, this became something of a turning in his entire ministry because at this point he resolutely makes his way to the city over the next days. And in fact, chapter 9 and 10 in particular are about the things that Jesus taught his disciples on the way to Jerusalem. And twice more he brings up his death in those two chapters. Jesus knew the cross was ahead. And he faced severe temptation in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Right at the beginning of the gospel, right at the beginning of his ministry, in chapter 1, we are told after his baptism, the Holy Spirit compelled him into the wilderness, and there Satan tempted him. And then we're also told that in the garden, the eve of his arrest, and uh, really the inception of the trials and then the crucifixion. Jesus went to the garden after celebrating a Passover-like meal with the disciples, and he asked them to stay awake while he prayed. And he returned to see them, and they were asleep. And he... He warned them of the temptation that the flesh is weak. But perhaps one of the biggest temptations that Jesus faced is found right here in chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. And this is the third major temptation. I believe all three of these temptations target one fundamental thing the way of the cross. The way of the cross really is, as we see, the way of the kingdom, which Jesus came preaching when he initiated and then throughout his ministry. Parables, teachings, asides to the disciples, uh, kind of parabolic healings, everything that he did was, a, was showing us what, it, what the nature of the kingdom of God is, And all that he taught about the kingdom involved what I will call for you the way of the cross. And that would be the target of these temptations, to abandon the way of the cross, to go another way, to go your own way. The cross is an emblem in... uh, history and in the period of Jesus' life and ministry, it's an instrument of the most degrading death imaginable. I think you have to contemplate it to even come close to appreciating what it would be like to be sentenced 
to death on a cross, and then the anticipation, and then the actual death, and the scorn, and the shame, and the humiliation associated with it. It, it not only kills you, it, it strips you of being human, because in a way you are less than human in the treatment that you receive when you are crucified. It is a, it is a powerful display of superiority and conquest for the one who is the crucifier. So for Jesus to tell his disciples that he's going to die and that he's going, he doesn't literally say, I'm going to be crucified. He says, I'm going to be put to death. But then he turns around, as we'll see, and he talks about taking up your cross. Now that's interesting to me that he would use crucifixion and the emblem of taking up your cross as a significant or central teaching on what it means to be his disciple. So although the cross is an emblem of the most degrading death imaginable, it's also as followers of Jesus an emblem of God's unimaginable love. I don't think there's any more powerful demonstration than that which is given by us in, by Paul to us in Romans chapter 5, verses 7 through 8. And therein he says, God exhibits as proof of his own love for us that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. And it an exhibit of proof of God's love for us is that Jesus Christ died for us while we were still sinners. The world would not see it that way, but if we follow Christ, we see it that way. And we follow the Christ of the cross. And that's what I want to talk about this morning as we look at Mark 8:27 through 38. We follow the Christ of the cross. Let me read it starting at verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. 
And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. In other words, the entire religious establishment. The entire, every class of religious leadership will reject me. And be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. He said this candidly. He, he, he said it very clearly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me, for my sake, and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. What is Peter's problem? That's the question. What is Peter's problem? That is such a shocking thing that he should pull Jesus aside and rebuke him, that he should reprimand Jesus. Now, that, but that might not seem like such a big deal today in our culture. We see it all the time on television, people ba talking back to others. There is a very little sense of respect or humility, and it's pretty well promoted. You know, hey, parents are all idiots, so tell them what you're going to do, and don't take any back talk from your parents. Well, I'm sure it's encouraging to hear John talk about that. 
But it's not going to help you, moms and dads. The reality is we live in a culture in which there is very little regard or respect for the dignity of office or the dignity of other people. And part of this, I, I didn't mean to or plan to say this, but where there's no God, then, of course, the whole system is degraded because at least in, from Scripture and in, in the Christian faith, and those who believe in the Bible, God establishes our dignity when he creates us. He puts a, a value on us, and then that is trumped when he puts a greater value on us by giving up his son to die for us. That even enhances the value of human life. And so Christians should have a very high view of human life and human dignity, very, very high, and even of the creation, for it is God's. We are conservators of his creation. We ought to honor him through how we manage what he gives us even in our own lives, we tithe and give. We give a, a portion in return. It is an act of worship, an acknowledgement of his existence and who he is and what he means to us. And that we realize in a very real sense that our abundance is God-given. From health to monetary means, and more. But for Peter, a disciple, with his master, Jesus even invoked his position as master verbally on occasion. If you call me master, for a, for a disciple who is a learner, a, a student. Some of you can remember being in school where there was high respect for teachers. And so when a teacher taught and spoke, boy, you, you regarded that highly. In Jesus' day, when a teacher would, or a, a rabbi Rabbi means my teacher. If a teacher spoke, you listened. They picked you. You didn't pick them. That's why in the Gospels, Jesus begins his ministry calling these people. He called them. Peter took him aside. He pulled him away from the group and began to reprimand him. I don't want you to ever forget that. I, don't th I find that chilling. I don't think there's any way that we can even begin 
even some of us who are from an, a different era can even begin to appreciate. I mean, this is more than chutzpah. Peter had to have a lot of confidence in, in his reasoning. He had to really think that the truth was on his side, right? He had to tell Jesus something that he didn't know, but Peter did. And what was that something? I'm going to tell you, even though it's not here. But from the context, you'll never get a better answer for what, G, what was the topic of Peter's rebuke. And that is this. Jesus, Messiahs, don't die, and they aren't crucified. He wouldn't have said it like that, but I'm giving you the summary. No one expected a, a Messiah to end his ministry, his life's work, to end in death. Remember the disciples in Luke 24, chapter 24, the end of Luke's gospel? They're walking on the road to Emmaus, and a stranger joins them. Does this ring a bell? A stranger joins them, and they, they take up this conversation and the stranger says, I'm going to give you the John Venema version. The stranger says, what's going on? And Cleopas says, are you the only person in these parts that doesn't know what's going on? Are you unaware of what's just happened in Jerusalem? And he says, uh, what's happened? And the, they begin to, the disciples of Jesus begin to tell the stranger what's happened. That Jesus, this prophet, let's, let's in fact uh, look at it. I'm going to read it to you because it, it bears, I want you to make sure that you know what it says because otherwise you might think I'm making it up. Luke 24. Verse 13 is where the passage picks up, and we're going to look at um, verse 19. And he said to them, what things? See, I wasn't far off, huh? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers de delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. But notice verse 21, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So he's not even called the, you, you don't call him a Messiah because he was crucified. You call him a prophet. We had hoped. 
If he had succeeded, if he was the Messiah, he would have redeemed Israel. But he went to the cross. Nobody expected a Messiah that was going to... They just don't expect a Messiah who's going to throw off the Roman yoke to suffer and die on a cross. It even threw Paul for a loop. loop. That's why the Apostle Paul persecuted the Christians as he did. He thought they were blasphemers, calling a crucified man the Messiah. Think about that. That is just, it boggles the mind if you can detach yourself, you know, because we are so attached to the Lord in our faith. But if you just think historically for a moment, it's really quite a shocking thing. And that is part of the reason that Peter rebuked Jesus. Because he thought Jesus didn't understand his mission. He had just called him the Messiah. He had just called him the Messiah. And he takes him aside politely, no doubt. But he has the confidence, you see, of how he sees the Messiah to correct Jesus. And Jesus looks over at the disciples. Did you catch that? How he turned and looked at the disciples? Then he turns back because he realizes Peter isn't alone in this. His, all 12 of his followers think he's wrong. Now just let that sink in for a minute. When they move on from this moment and this questioning and this teaching, he will begin to make his way toward Jerusalem. And the death that he is telling them awaits him. And he's got 12 followers that he's invested his life in. His ministry hangs in the balance. And these 12 disciples don't think he knows what he's doing. That's not just Peter's problem. That's the disciples' problem, and it's our problem. There's more at stake here than meets the eye. Because We have to see all of Jesus. We have to follow all of Jesus. We have the good fortune of having the four gospel accounts, not just the memories that the disciples themselves had at that point of all of his teachings and how rich those memories were, but even they needed to be corrected. I didn't know how to convey this clearly, but I ran across an article. I I was just searching for some kind of illustration, and what I ran across was an article by a a pastor named Daniel Darling. Um, I don't know Daniel that much, but I resonated with, he talked about, he wrote an article about counterfeit Jesuses. And here's some of the 
counterfeits that he described, the guru Jesus. Uh, This is a Jesus of enlightenment, of uh, uplifting thoughts, not a Jesus who bothers us with dangerous talk of the kingdom. Or a red-letter Jesus. This would be a Jesus that uh, is kind of limited. In other words, these kinds of Jesuses are Jesuses of our own making. The way we read Scripture or the way we hear Jesus talked about, or maybe we have a favorite person that we listen to all the time and we think that person, he's the true teacher. So whatever he says about Jesus is what I believe about Jesus. Does this make sense to you? Here are some more that he, obviously he's seen this sort of thing, so he's creating these to help us understand this, but he calls one the Braveheart Jesus. This is the kind of Jesus that's the manly man that the men like to follow. But of course they don't like that part of Jesus where he talks about lowly service. Or the Dr. Field Jesus, the tough talking purveyor of self-help principles, solutions for our problems, but then again, not necessarily the object of our worship. Or the prosperity Jesus, who promises a better, more prosperous life. Of course, this is a life that Prays on a great faith when everything goes right, but not when everything goes wrong or there are troubles or, goodness sakes, we don't talk about persecution, which is not something that we've had to face yet. Um, there's a Jesus without the church. There's a, a best friend, a, a BFF Jesus, he calls it. This Jesus approves without reservation our lifestyles, behaviors, and is safe for the whole family. Well, I just wanted to get your minds thinking because in a way, they saw Jesus, but they didn't see all of Jesus, and Jesus had to set them straight. And I wanted to draw your attention to this as we look at the last week, remembering this week, looking to Good Friday and then Resurrection Sunday a week from now, I remember being at a great church, but I wasn't really faced and called to follow the Jesus of the cross. Not in the, until I got to this passage. This passage has been instrumental in my life because I took it to heart and I didn't read it through a lens. I let Jesus, so to speak, speak to me. And there's more at stake than meets the eye. And we see this when Jesus says, you are not thinking of that which is of God, but that which is human. He says, get thee behind me, Satan. Well, that sure fits in with our emphasis in the last few weeks from from the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, chapter 6, on spiritual warfare. Because this is quite a temptation This has been the temptation that Jesus has been facing his entire ministry. 
It was the substance of the temptation at the hands of Satan. That intense temptation asking basically Jesus to put himself ahead of everything else. Satan said, I'll fund you. I'll back you. I'll promote you. I'll set at your feet all the kingdoms of the earth. Jesus had to reject it because of the kingdom of God. Now Peter says, no, Jesus, you've got this wrong. You're the Messiah. It's not a cross. He wouldn't, of course, use those words. But that's what Jesus knew he was asking him to avoid. So he says, you have not the thoughts of man, not the thoughts of God, but the thoughts of human thoughts, man's thoughts, women's thoughts at heart. And that's why he then says, everybody gather around. Come on in here, disciples, all of you. Come in close. I want you to hear me on this. This is really important. And he got to the central thing that had to be confronted. And we see that in verses 34 through 38. Take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. In the New York uh, Times, it was reported that between Friday afternoon and Saturday morning, a theft took place at the Church of the Holy Cross in Midtown Manhattan. It was the second theft in three weeks. In the first break-in, they took a metal box which was positioned um, next to the votive candle rack. You've seen those in the movies. You know, whenever there's a a film, there's a scene shot within a, like a Catholic church, an Orthodox church, there's all those votive candles and they're flickering. They love to, to do dialogue by those. You know, the flickering of the lights, it's very dramatic. Well, what you don't often see is that there is a votive box there so that if you go in and light a candle and pray, there's a place for you to put a gift. And the thieves took that votive box and made off with it. And then three weeks later, the thieves made off with something more valuable. They unbolted a four-foot, 200-pound plaster Jesus from an entrance wall. And it should be noted that they took the figure of Christ, but they left behind the wooden cross. The church caretaker, David St. James, expressed his confusion over this. They just decided, this is David St. James speaking, we're going to leave the cross and take Jesus. We don't know why they just took him. We figure if you want the crucifix, you take the whole crucifix. In other words, David St. James was saying, if you want Jesus, you take his cross too. And that illustrates what Jesus is saying. He's saying to his disciples, if you want to follow me, it comes with a cross. It's not detachable. It comes with a cross. This is the hardest thing for us to grasp. 
You see, his disciples hadn't followed the Christ of the cross. They had followed the Christ of the popular expectation. That gave Peter the chutzpah to correct his master and to try and put him in his place. And that's why Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. In other words, this is the language of discipleship. And when he confronts Peter with the name of Satan, he's, as he then goes on to say, he is in effect defining the issue. You are more concerned with human affairs and self-interest than you are the affairs that God has for us and his kingdom. And that's what we're all called to each and every day. And that's what we need to come back to on a regular basis. It's kind of a joke uh, among the pastoral staff. Sometimes, very rarely, but sometimes I, I kind of get on one of, the, one of the pastors. And if I don't do it just right, then it's not okay. And so I go to their office or I get aside with them at another occasion and I apologize. I say, you know, the issue was this, but maybe I didn't handle it in the right way and I, I want to ask your forgiveness. And we set everything straight. Well, I don't want you to misunderstand, but now I have a reputation, see? And so if I, like the about a week or so ago, I kind of got on Stephen Elliott, pastor of high school ministries. And, uh, and then I, I, I kind of put my head down and Stephen spoke and said, uh, I know, you'll be at my office in just a little while. <laughs> <laughs> that little wow, that little wow, that's where I'm looking for my cross the one that Jesus gave me. The one that I laid down somewhere that I need to find and put back in its place on my back. Why? Because I follow a, the Messiah who is fully identified with the way of the cross. In fact, there's a word for it. It's called cruciform. Christians are to be cruciform, defined by the cross. Now that changes everything. I hope you understand that. In chapter 9 and 10 of Mark, after Peter rebuked Jesus, he took up this issue two more times, and he taught them about discipleship and the way of the cross. I hope you'll read chapters 9 and 10 and reflect on that so that you do this because you see, I can't carry your cross for you. It is a problem for pastors because they want to carry the cross for others. 
That's how much we, we pastors are devoted to the Lord and love him, but we can't. In fact, we have trouble sometimes carrying our own. And what we need to do is just keep trying to close that gap. And pretty soon, we won't even have to look for it because we'll know exactly where it is. We stand. Let me pray for us. As you've heard me say probably many times now, after I pray, I'm going to be up here along with pastoral staff, elders, their spouses. I hope God has spoken to your heart. I know that sometimes he doesn't always speak within a 30, 35-minute window. But he has been speaking. Have you been listening? I hope so. Because this is the way of new life full life, and not just for you, but Christians who follow the way of the cross with Christ, they bring life and change into their relationships, their work, places of work, all the spheres of their life. If God has spoken to you or you want to pray about something about yourself or for someone else, if you want to make Jesus Christ your Lord, we invite you to come and pray with us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, uh, this morning. Thank you, for, thank you for Peter. Father, thank you for your Son, our Messiah, our Lord Jesus. And thank you for your Holy Spirit who you have poured out upon us. May we walk in your power the way of the cross of humility, of love, of its demonstration because of your demonstration of love in Christ. In his matchless name we pray. And all of God's people said, God bless you.